Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verse number 7. Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 7. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. We ask a very important question to begin with this morning. What is life? What is life? Nobody seems to be able to identify this. People talk about what has life, but they can't tell you what life is. Found a few definitions, for example. The Oxford Dictionary says that life is the condition that distinguishes animals and plants from inorganic matter, including the capacity for growth, reproduction, and functional activity and continual change preceding death. Doesn't tell you what life is, tells you what's got life. Another definition here, this one was an interesting one, came from the uh, Sanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And they said that NASA operate, uh, operational definition of life is a self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. I thought, well, that's a real brilliant answer. Doesn't tell you what life is, though. Another definition, this one comes from the National Library of Medicine's They state that we can define life as the period from birth to death or as a condition that occurs only in living organisms. And so you see all of these definitions. They're trying to tell you something, but they don't know what life is. That's the truth. As we think about that all-important question, what is life? That's one that we need to focus on ourselves. We need to try to find some answers there. So, so far in our biblical worldview study, we've looked first at, at God and established that God exists, and there's lots of evidence that God exists. We also looked at the worldview of the Bible veracity, that we can trust the Bible, that the Bible is dependable, it is um, able to be verified, and we can depend upon the scriptures. Last week, we talked about the sufficiency of the Bible, how that it is sufficient for all that we need. It answers the questions of life for us, but we need to just depend upon it. This morning, we're going to be focusing our attention on the worldview of life. What is life? As we think about this very important question, we need to base our belief and practice about life on God that exists and his dependable and sufficient word. And if we, you know, to know this will help us to be able to understand what life really is all about. And in order to do this, I want to answer two important questions that I believe will help us in this search for what is life? What is life? Here in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 7, again, we read there, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The first question I want us to focus our thoughts on is this question, What is a biblical worldview of life? What's a biblical worldview of life? We've, we've seen some of the secular ideas about life, and they can't really answer that question, what is life? But we ask that question again, what is life? You know, life is a mystery. 
It really is. It is a mystery. What is life? That's a mystery. We see what happens when life is not there. A, 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 a living being becomes lifeless. But what is life? Science cannot define it. Men can create all kinds of robotic things that act kind of living, but they can't, they can't create life. And they never will be able to because man is not capable of producing life. Life comes from a much higher being, as we will see in a moment. A definition that might be a little bit closer to what life really is, is that life is an invisible power that enables cells and creatures to function, grow, and reproduce. But where does that come from? Where does life come from? Where, where is its source? In our worldview of God, we established that all life requires a life giver. And higher, a higher being must exist who is capable of giving life. There has to be. That higher being, we believe, is God. And we believe that that is the one and only living and true Jehovah God of the Bible. The life giver. Let me show you a few scriptures in the Old Testament. I encourage you to follow along and, and look them up yourself and it'll help you. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. These are verses that describe God as a living God. A life-giving God must have life himself. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse number 26. Deuteronomy 5 and verse 26 says, For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and lived. Moses here speaking, he says, we, he's speaking to the children of Israel, says, we have heard God speak. He is the living God. Who else have ever done that? This is an amazing thing. We have heard the living God speak. The psalmist says something similar in Psalm 42. Psalm 42. Psalm 42 and verse number 2. He says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He talks about God as being the living God. Our God is alive. And it's important for us to grasp that and understand that. That's nothing that we are not aware of, but it's good for us to see this and to be able to put it all together. Way over the other end of your Bible, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 31. We read there, the Apostle Paul writes, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The living God. Our God is alive. If you search that little phrase, living God, you will find over 30 times in the Bible that God is spoken of as a living God. You think of the various other gods of the pagans and nations around us. They're all dead. Nobody else has a living God. 
Our God is alive. And He's always existed and always will. And He's always had life. Because our God is a living God. It's important for us to grasp that truth. It is a Our omnipotent living God who gives life. Back in that text verse we started with, and I'm going to have you moving around in your Bible a lot this morning. So Genesis chapter 2 again in verse number 7. Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 7. He says there, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. God breathed into man life. And man became a living soul. Once again, I apologize for back and forth, but that's just the way it is. Mark, uh, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And uh, this one here is in verse number 25. Acts 17, 25. Neither is worship. Now Paul here in Acts 17 is speaking on Mars Hill. He's preaching to a bunch of uh, unbelieving Greeks and uh, describing God to them. And verse number 25, he says, Neither is God worshipped with men's hands as though he need anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. It is our God that gives life. He gives life to all. And so all things that have life get their life from God. Another question that came up in Sunday school not long ago, one of the children, Melody asked one of the children if they, or I guess she asked all the children, if, if Jesus was alive. And they said, no, he died. And he's in heaven now. And that's really what sparked our thoughts as Melody asked, was asking me some questions about this. I thought, we've got to address this. All right? Living things on earth have physical substance, but God doesn't have physical substance. So is God alive? Yes, God is alive. Though he doesn't have physical substance. God is a spirit. John chapter 4 and verse number 24. It's very important you catch this. The Mormons teach that God has a body. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So God is a spirit and yet we find that God is alive though he doesn't have a physical body. Jesus Christ, when he became a man, he lived in a physical body and was alive. But when he died on the cross and was buried and rose again, he rose again with an immortal body. It looked like a body. The disciples didn't run in fear that they were seeing a ghost. But at the same time, it was an in, it was an Different kind of a body. He was able to walk through the wall. How? I don't know. I don't understand. He just appeared in the midst of them. And and could disappear just like that. And yet he was alive. And he said, if you don't believe I'm alive, give me something to eat. And he ate in front of them. He ate of of their honeycomb and fish. He ate with them. So he showed them he was alive. And then in... In Mark chapter 24, he he clearly stated that he was alive. He was living. So Jesus Christ is alive. And yes, he's ascended back into heaven, but he is still alive. 
Our God has always been alive. No, Jesus Christ died for those three days. He was dead, but he, he did that for us. That was a, that, that was a, something that was beyond God, and he became a man to take our place. When I say beyond God, I'm not saying he wasn't capable, but God doesn't die. And so he had to become a man in order to die, in order to pay the debt for our sin, in order to pay the debt for us so that we could be set free. And that is a wonderful thought. But Jesus is alive. The Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit alive? Well, the Holy Spirit, I believe, is alive. The Spirit of, he is the Spirit called the Spirit of the living God. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 3. Then, being the third person of the Trinity, he is alive. Just like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three of them are very much alive. They're the living God. Jesus Christ uh, was called by Paul the second Adam and a quickening spirit. The word quickening means a life-giving spirit. So Jesus Christ was called a life-giving spirit. So God, though he doesn't have a physical substance as we do, is very much alive. But then that brings us to another question. What actually has life? You might never have really thought about that too much. But what has life? Well, we know man has life. We know that. Uh, Genesis 2-7, God gave Adam life. He became a living soul. So man has life. We know also that the animals and the birds have life. Back in Genesis chapter 7, During the flood, the time of the flood there in Genesis chapter 7, we see in verse number 15, this is, and they, speaking to the animals, and they went into Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. The animals have the breath of life. We see in verse number 23 of the same chapter, it says, And every living substance was destroyed, from upon, uh, which was upon the face of the ground, both of man and cattle and of creeping things and of fowl and of hef, uh, fowls of heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. So these were the living creatures. So the animals were alive. The fish are alive. And yet the fish don't breathe air like we do. They, God has designed them to be able to extract oxygen from the water. And yet they have life. Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 28 includes the fish in that which is alive. Verse 28 of chapter 1, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and every living thing that moveth upon the earth. They are living things that move upon the earth. They are alive. But here's a hard question. Do plants have life? Yes and no. They don't breathe like we do. They don't move like we do. They don't have the breath of life, they're not like the fish that swim in the sea, but yet we can't say they're dead. They do have some sort of life. 
But it's a different kind of a life. It's not the same kind of life as an or, as a living creature has. But then another very important question that falls right in line with all of this. When does life begin? When does life begin? That's an important question. I was amazed when I found this definition from the American College of Pediatricians. And I quote, The predominance of human biological research confirms that human life begins at conception. I thought, amen. I was surprised to hear that from an organization like that. But they say that life begins at conception. And that's exactly what the scriptures tell us. Some of the amazing verses you can read in the Bible. Uh, Psalm 139. The psalmist describes how his parts were formed in his mother's womb before he was born. And God knew all those intricate parts. Very interesting reading there. Beginning about verse 13 onward of 139. Very interesting. We find also that God gives life to humans and he is the giver of that life and the only one that has the right to end that life. If God is the giver of life, then God should be the only one that has the right to say that's enough and take life away. This is an important truth for us to grasp in our worldview of life. However, God has ordained human government to take the life of offenders, such as murderers or serious sinful offenders. We read about this in Genesis 9-6. Also in Exodus 22 and verse 18, that there are times when it is right and just for human government to take the life of an offender for what they have done. The Bible never forbids self defense. And Believers, I believe, are allowed to defend themselves and their families. It's the right thing to do. Someone tries to break into your house, you have the right, biblically, to defend them. And say, no, you're not going to do that. God doesn't want us to just be so passive that we let everybody walk all over us and destroy us or hurt us and harm us. I know there's some ethical questions in all of this, you know, about war and all of these kind of things. And and some of these things are difficult to wrestle with. But the thing we need to establish in our own minds is the a biblical worldview of life. What is life? Where does life come from? How does life? How do we get life? When do we get life? And who's in charge of life? And who can take life? And so God gives us these things to help us and encourage us and guide us in these things. Another important aspect of this is what distinguishes human life from other life? A lot of people are confused about that in our world today. They treat the trees and the plants and the, you know, the eagles uh, on the same level as man. 
But the Bible doesn't do that. What makes the difference? What is significant? Well, we read about that in our text this morning. Read it again. Think about what it says here. Think with me. Verse number 7 of Genesis 2. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. All right, now that gives us some clues here, but then the verse that I really needed us to look at is in chapter 1 of the creation story in verse number 27. Chapter 1 in verse number 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. What did it say? God created man in his own image. Verse number 26 of the same chapter says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God made man in his own image, in the likeness of God. We are unique from all other creatures. Humans are not advanced animals, as science wants to tell us. We are human beings created in the image of God. Animals were not created in the image of God. Plants were not created in the image of God. God created them, but there's something unique about the image of God. What is that? What is the image of God? Being made in God's image and His likeness, those two things seem to be synonyms. They refer to man's personality, his intelligence, and spiritual ability to know and relate to God. This is something that we can do and the animals can't do. My dog never wakes up in the morning and, and uh, bows down and has prayer time and, and uh, reads the Bible before she goes on her walk. She doesn't do that. And neither do my chickens. Animals don't have that sense. Man has that ability to commune with God. And we have that sense of intelligence where we, we can sense God and, and sense His presence and know that we have a, a spiritual side to us that, that we can communicate. Another way of looking at this, Thomas Constable in his commentary said, both, uh, both of these indicate personality, speaking of the, the um, being made in God's image and in His likeness. He says, both of these indicate personality, moral, and spiritual qualities that God and man share. For example, self-consciousness, God-consciousness, freedom, responsibility, speech, moral discernment. All right. So these are things that... That's all right. Okay. Yeah, just make sure everything's okay, Sean. Okay. And so God has... Um, given us this, this understanding, this, this image of God. Being in the image of God, we are able to, we are, we're able to have consciousness of, uh, self-consciousness, God, consciousness of God, freedom to make decisions, responsibility, we can speak, we have moral discernment. All of these things are things that the animals don't have. Alright? When I take my dog on a walk, we don't have communication in, back and forth. Now, I had some communication with her this morning because she wasn't obeying, and so we had to have some communication. But she didn't talk back to me and said, but I don't like that. (laughs) She just gave me that look. Uh, But there's not the verbal communication. And 
So there, there's a need for, we have that personality. We have that ability to communicate with God. We have that sense of sin in our hearts. We know right from wrong. There's that moral understanding. All of these things are things that we have as humans. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. And animals are not made in the image of God. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that animals or birds or fish are made in the image of God. He gave them breath and life, yes, but they're not in the image of God. They are unique. These distinctions are why murdering a human is wrong, but killing an animal to eat is not wrong. And yet there are many people today that have this idea that it's just as bad to kill a cow to have hamburgers as it is to kill a human. Well, that's not true because animals were not made in the image. They're made. They were not made in the image of God. They were given breath and life by God, but not made in the image of God. And so we are unique to all the creatures that are in this world, unique to all the things that are in this world. And so, yes, we should take care of what God has given to us. He has made man to be able to um, to govern and care for this world that He has created. And he doesn't want us to abuse it and to misuse it, but at the same time, we are on a different level than the things of this world. We are not like the creatures. But that brings us to a second question. We answered the first question, or attempted to there, on that first question is, what is a biblical worldview of life? But now, why is a biblical worldview of life important? Why is that important? Why should we have a biblical worldview of life? Several reasons. Number one is it provides a solid foundation for origins. If we don't have an understanding of a biblical worldview of life, then it's going to mess up our view of origins. Where did we come from? How did it all get here? What all, you know, what all took place at origin? Did we evolve like the slime on the pond that the evolutionists tell us? No. But why do we know that? Because of only life can come from a life giver. And that gives us a solid foundation to build upon. We'll consider more of this in another message. But that's something for us to ponder. Now, also, it upholds the sanctity of life. Having a proper biblical worldview of life upholds the sanctity of life. Humans are not animals. We possess God's image. And humans and humanity is sacred, much more sacred than any of the rest of creation. We're set apart. We're made in God's image. It's wrong to place animals and trees and plants and objects on a sacred level that man has. I'm not saying we should abuse the things that are out there. We shouldn't. But we are not on the same level. Number three, it condemns abortion and euthanasia as murder. Intentionally terminating a conceived life by abortion for any reason is murdering that life. Now, I know there's ethical issues involved in here, and sometimes it comes to a place where the mother's life or the baby's life, and, I, and there's got to be an ethical decision, and those are tough ones. But no matter what takes place, that little infant is alive. And to take that life is killing life. And it's important for us to see that. 
We see an increasing move toward euthanasia. Elderly people, sickly people. And I mean, from a human perspective, I can understand the thinking behind it. You've got a, a person that's no longer mentally aware of anything, and they're just a burden, and so why not just shorten their life? From a logical perspective, we can see some thinking of that line, but God says it's life. God gave that life. God will take that life in his good time. And we need to leave it with God. That's one of the major reasons why suicide is wrong. Because it is taking a life, even though it's taking the life of the person that is doing it, it's taking a life that God gave. And God says, I will take a life when it's my time. Sometimes it's hard to comprehend, you know, why does... You know, why did this happen and that happen and why did it happen in this timing? And, and you know, they, if a person commits suicide or somebody gets shot and you say, well, how, you know, what about God's timing and all of this? And, you know, God has control of all of that. And there's a lot of that that we don't understand. But the bottom line is God gave life. God will take life. And we need to leave it in his hands. One other last thing I want us to focus our thoughts on is that that the, a biblical worldview of life gives humans a purpose for now and eternity. It gives us a purpose. When God created humans in his own image, he walked and talked with them in the garden. I mean, I, I like just dreaming about what that must have been like for Adam and Eve. God created them. First he created Adam and and he says, Adam, name all the animals. And Adam names all the animals and said, God, something's wrong here. All the birds, there's a boy and a girl and a fish, a boy and a girl. And where's mine? We can just kind of picture in our mind. And, And God says, yes, it's not good that a man should be alone. And we know that today. You know, we're complete when we're married. You know, some people, they, they, they look at marriage as a pain. And in some marriages are a pain, and that's sad. It shouldn't be that way. But marriage is supposed to be a happy union where we fulfill each other. Marriage is not just about physical relationship, but that's only a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of it. The marriage is a, a relationship with another person where we fulfill each other and we complete each other and we help each other and together we form a Unit that can work together. It's like taking pliers. You know, you, you, we've all used pliers. If you take those pliers apart, they're useless. They're useless. You, you take that one half of the plier and you try to do something with it. I mean, you might use it as a hammer to bash on something, but it, it's basically useless. But you put those two together and so they can work together in harmony and they can accomplish a lot of things. And so it is in a a marriage. God says by being together we can accomplish a lot of things that we can't accomplish separately. And so marriage is good. And marriage, we, we need to cultivate our marriages so that it is healthy and strong and good. But God designed it that way for our good. And Adam and Eve walked and talked with God there in the garden. What a wonderful thing that would have been to fellowship with God. God walking with us in the garden, talking with him. Any kind of questions you wanted to ask God, you could talk to God himself. 
Now, did they see God? I mean, God was a spirit. I don't know whether they saw him, but they knew his presence. Remember when he came down after they had sinned, and they were hiding from the presence of God. So they were hiding from something. If you try hiding from the spirit, you know, if, if, if you're saying, all right, let's hide from God right now. All right, everybody ready? On the count of three, you hide from God. Where would you go? You can't go anywhere to hide from God. He's everywhere. But they recognized his presence when God was there. And they hid themselves and covered themselves because they felt ashamed. They had sweet fellowship with God until they sinned. They disobeyed God and sinned and changed everything. They didn't lose their image of God. But they lost the fellowship of that image of God. And it wasn't until God had a plan all this time. You know, that's an amazing thing about God. His mind is not locked in time. God knew from eternity past that men would sin. God knew that he would have to send his son to pay the debt of our sin. And he knew how he would deal with that. And he knew how he would offer it to us. God knew all these things. And yet, he planned all that to be able to solve a problem because he wanted our fellowship with him. God created Adam and Eve to walk and talk with him in the garden. And that broke apart when they sinned. And God says, we're going to have to mend this. I want that sweet fellowship with my people. I want communion with them. But their sin stands between me and them. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, paying the debt of our sin, we can come to Him and be saved and washed clean and be forgiven and have a a fellowship with God again that we could not have possibly had any other way. But folks, listen, don't forget, we've got to keep that sweet fellowship active all the time. And that's why we have 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because every day we'll think or do something that will hinder our fellowship with God. Because God is holy and we are far from it. And that's why 1 John 1, 9 is so vital to keep our fellowship with God right. Because that's what God wants. He wants us to be in tune with Him. He wants us to have fellowship with Him. That's why He created us with life. That's why He gave us His image. That we be able to commune with Him and fellowship with Him. And from Genesis chapter 3 onward, the rest of the Bible unfolds God's plan of redemption. I don't know about you, but I've often wondered why He waited Nearly 4,000 years before he sent his son to pay the debt of our sin. I don't know. All I can say is with God, time is not an issue. But you look through that, all through the time the people of Israel went, were the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and they spend 400 years in Egypt, and then they get out of Egypt, and Moses brings them out of Egypt, and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and they enter into the Canaan land, and you have another about 400 years of the judges, and they go back and forth in cycles of sinning against God and coming back to God and sinning against God and coming back to God. And then after that, God gives them a king, and King Saul is a bad king, and he doesn't last 
what, 40 years, and David comes along, and he's a much better king, and then David, the Davidic line, all of this is following the Davidic line, the promises of the Messiah coming. And all through this time, through, through Abraham, God promised Abraham the Messiah would come through his line, and it would bless all nations. And so there was Abraham, and then Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and then and, and, and they followed through the, the people of Israel, all the way through the, through the kings, and the line of David, and come all the way to the New Testament, when we get to the New Testament and we read there in Genesis how uh, the, the Mary was uh, from the, the line of David and Joseph was from the line of David. And they, though Joseph was not the physical father of Christ, he was the adopted father of Christ. And Christ came through them and it had been prophesied and fulfilled all this. And Christ lived and died and paid the debt of our sin. And he went back to heaven. And the, and the rest of the New Testament is telling us how to live that life for Christ, to glorify him. And you get to the very end and he tells us of how or it's all things are going to be restored once again. And things are going to be back to the way it was in creation. When God created man to walk and talk with him. That's what we've been made for. And that's what God wants for your life. And that's a wonderful thing about a biblical worldview of life is that God made you with his love in mind because he wants you to walk with him and fellowship with him and walk with him and enjoy his presence and be able to spend all eternity with him. That's in the heart and mind of God. And if you have a, an unbiblical worldview of life, that we just... Life just kind of happened. And it just kind of came upon, once upon a time, it just, life came into existence spontaneously. There's no purpose in that. You were just an accident. Nobody really loves you. When you die, it's no big deal. It's in your, you come for a while and you're gone. You're just here for a time and you just, you're gone. There's no purpose in that. And that's why we live in a world where people are so frustrated and so hurting. They have no hope, no future, no purpose, no peace. And we've got something that they need. And if you know Jesus Christ, your Savior, you need to share that with others around you. They are hurting people. They need what we have. And God wants them to have what we have because he wants their communion and fellowship as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so it's important that we have a solid biblical worldview of life. If your worldview of life has been not truly a biblical worldview of life, I encourage you and challenge you to dig into this. Ask God to help you to change your thinking and to have a solidly biblical worldview of life. You're welcome to download my notes. All the notes that I'm preaching from here are on the web. And you can have a read through those. The scriptures, look them up again. Dig through it. But come to a conclusion in your own heart that, yes, that is true. That is biblical. That is right. And that's where we're going to stand. That's what God wants from us today. And if you, by chance, are here today without Jesus as your Savior, it's where it's got to start. Because without Jesus as your Savior, if you haven't received His gift of eternal life, you have no hope of spending eternity with Him. You have no hope of living together with Him forever. And that's what God desires. So I encourage you to talk with me or talk to someone else here today that can help you and point you to the way 
of eternal life through Jesus Christ.